0: So we're starting a new Lenten series today that's going to take us through Easter, and it's a study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke is one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and it's actually part one. We've talked about this before. It's part one of a two-part book that includes both Luke and Acts, and both were written by Luke, who was the traveling companion, co-worker of Paul the Apostle. We also know that Luke was a doctor. He was a doc. So if you want to get a doctor's perspective on Jesus, a doctor's perspective on the church, like Luke is your guy. And in the first chapter of Luke, he tells us why he wrote the book. And it's interesting what he says. He acknowledges, right at the beginning, he acknowledges that there's been lots of accounts that have been put together of Jesus' life, lots of accounts of Jesus. But he wants to write what he calls an orderly account of Jesus' life using as many of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry as possible. And he says that this is an account of the things that have been fulfilled. That's the phrase, phraseology, that have been fulfilled by Jesus. In other words, he's saying that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the overarching narrative of scripture. This story that begins in a garden and ends in a city. This story that begins in Genesis and ends in in Revelation. This story that begins in brokenness and ends in restoration and redemption and reconciliation and wholeness. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole narrative. That scripture, we talk about this a lot that I know that the Bible is divided into these 66 books and we read these books and chapters, and we read all these stories, but all of these stories are a part of one overarching story. And it's the story of God's redeeming, restorative work in this world. And that's why Luke says, I've written this, so that you can have an account of the things that have been fulfilled by Jesus. Now, Luke has 24 chapters. And we only have seven weeks, and so we obviously can't deal with all 24 chapters. So we're going to look at eight of them. And the first chapter we're going to look at is actually chapter four. And chapter four begins this way. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry." Now, there are three things I want you to notice here. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke says. That he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was guided by the Holy Spirit. That he was energized by the Holy Spirit. That he was being led by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit had fallen on him. Like, that's the first thing I want you to notice. Second thing I want you to notice is that Luke says that Jesus has just returned from somewhere, He has just returned from the Jordan. And what he's talking about is Jesus' baptism, where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And we read about that in chapter three, one chapter earlier. Before we get to chapter four, this is what we read. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form. That must have been wild like a dove, and a voice, this must have been wild, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. What an incredible Holy Spirit moment. The Holy Spirit of God falls on Jesus, and the Holy Spirit physically manifests itself in the form of a dove, And then a voice booms out from heaven that apparently everyone can hear because Luke is reporting on it. This voice booms out from heaven that everyone can hear and says, you are my son and I love you and I'm well pleased with you. Now, I'm just gonna guess, just gonna go out on a limb here and just guess that whatever Holy Spirit moments that you've had in your life However powerful they have been, and I know that, that for some of us, we have experienced some really powerful Holy Spirit moments. They have not included doves and the voice of God speaking loudly so that every person could hear it. That's an incredibly powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, I want you to notice that almost immediately after all this happens to Jesus, He is led by the Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God that fell on him when he was baptized in the midst of that incredible celebration. He is led by the Spirit of God in the desert where he is tempted by the devil for 40 days. Now you go, well, what's going on here? Because generally when we think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, right? When we think about the Holy Spirit falling on us, when we think about being led by the Holy Spirit, when we think about the Holy Spirit coming in all of its power, like usually when we think about all that, we think about the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we think about spiritual high points in our lives, right? We think about times of tremendous ministry advance. We think about accomplishing big things for God. We usually, when we think about The power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit being on someone generally, generally what goes to our mind is not times of profound temptation. In fact, it's during those times that we tend to wonder if we even have the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's usually when we're dealing with temptation. It's usually when we're dealing with struggle. It's usually when we're dealing with difficult stuff in our lives that we're going, God, are you here or not? Is the power of the Holy Spirit present in my life or not? Like We begin to wonder about the presence of the Holy Spirit. So why would the Holy Spirit, you ask, why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the desert? And why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into a time of temptation? Didn't Jesus, wasn't Jesus the one that taught us to pray Father, lead us not into temptation? So why would would the Father lead Jesus into temptation? Well, first of all, (laughs) we need to read the text a little more closely. It's interesting how theologies get formed sometimes in our mind because we don't read the text well. Like We don't actually read what the text is saying. So we need to read this text a little more closely. Luke doesn't say that Jesus was led by the Spirit into temptation. In fact, he doesn't even say that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit in the desert. (laughs) That while he was in the desert, he was led by the Spirit. Now, a little geography is probably helpful here. When you go to the Jordan River, like... uh, A group from our church did back in October, and that was an amazing, amazing trip, and we're hoping to do the same thing next year. Uh, But when you go to the Jordan River, and you go to the place where um, Jesus was baptized, um, and that place is now pretty much unanimously agreed upon that it's this little, actually kind of a little offshoot from the Jordan River that's at a a particular point. And when you go to the Jordan River, you immediately notice a number of things about the location where Jesus was baptized. The first thing you notice is that this little strip of flat land on both sides of the Jordan River is fertile and green. And and that's where things grow. And that's where uh, some lush farmland is and all of that. Secondly you notice that once you move beyond that little, that little strip of fertile land that's on each side of the Jordan River, you are almost immediately in the desert. You're almost immediately in the wilderness. That there is desert, there is wilderness on both sides of the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. And there's, there's different thoughts about when Jesus was baptized Which side of the Jordan River did he go into the desert? Doesn't matter. Like, both sides are desert, wilderness, barren. Like, when we were in them, it was like, I'm glad I'm in a bus that's air conditioned and I have a bottle of water with me. Like, it is barren, barren looking on both sides when you move past that little, that little strip that's just by the Jordan River. In fact, to get almost anywhere from where Jesus was baptized, anywhere from that part of the Jordan River, you have to go through the desert. You have to go through the wilderness. So lots of people in that region walked through the desert. Lots of people in that region walked through the wilderness. What made Jesus' time in the desert different was that he was not just in the desert. He was being led by the Spirit while he was in the desert. He was being energized by the Spirit while he was in the desert. He was filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit had fallen on him even while he was in the desert. And that's so important for us to understand because this side of heaven, and we talk about this a lot, I know this side of heaven, there are always going to be deserts that we find ourselves walking through. Like life is filled with deserts. Life is filled with wilderness experiences. Everyone walks through the desert. Everyone goes through dry seasons. Everyone deals with tough stuff. That's just life this side of heaven. The question is not, will you go through the desert? Yes, you will. And maybe some of you are going through it right now. The question is, will you allow yourself to be led by the Spirit while you're in the desert. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean you will avoid the desert. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean that you will avoid temptation. Being filled with the Spirit means that God is with you in the desert. Means that God is with you in the midst of of temptation, It means that God is present in the hard seasons, in the seasons of temptation, in the seasons of struggle, in the seasons of attack, that he is in the good seasons and he is in the bad seasons, that he is in the seasons where we are taking new ground for the kingdom and he is in the seasons where we are facing struggles and doubts and questions and temptations. It's interesting because sometimes I've heard this even preached, that it kind of gives the sense that Jesus went into the desert to duke it out with with the, the, the devil. Like it was like it was like mano emano, and it was Jesus going, I'm gonna go in and and kick his tail. Like uh, that uh, I caught myself. know, yeah, that's good. I know I'm being recorded, okay? Um, But Jesus didn't go into the desert to like duke it out with the devil. Jesus went in the desert to fast and to pray and to prepare for the beginning of his ministry. He went into the desert to spend 40 days fasting and praying and preparing for the ministry that he has just been baptized and inaugurated and is about to preach a message that we read about in the last part of this chapter, like he goes into the desert for 40 days to pray, to fast, to prepare for the ministry that God has called him to. And while Jesus is in the desert, fasting, praying, it's while he's there that the devil seizes on that as an opportunity. Satan thought that in Jesus, weakened state that he would be more likely to succumb to temptation. Luke is reminding us here of the inevitability of temptation. The inevitability of conflicts. The inevitability of having to wrestle, wrestle, wrestle with hard stuff. If you think that you are so perfectly led. If you think that if you are so perfectly led by the Holy Spirit that you are so intimately close to God that you will never face temptation or hardships or difficulties or struggles, then you just aren't paying attention to Jesus. Because Jesus was totally and completely led by the Spirit. In fact, he and the Spirit were one, and yet Jesus faced profound temptation and would continue to do so. The end of this section, Ends with this verse, verse 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. In other words, I'm coming back. Like even though you are filled with the Spirit, even though you and the Spirit are one, don't think that I'm not going to continue my attacks upon you. Temptation is inevitable. Tough times are inevitable. Struggles are inevitable. Seasons in the desert, seasons of spiritual dryness are inevitable, even for those who are filled with the Spirit. Even with those who are led by the Spirit. So how does Satan tempt Jesus? Well, he doesn't take Jesus to the red light district, right? He doesn't He doesn't say, hey, let's go get drunk, you know. Uh, He doesn't do that. Satan is not asking Jesus to break one of the Ten Commandments. That's not what he does. He's not asking him to lie or steal or commit some kind of sexual sin. He doesn't do any of that. He's not telling Jesus that he wants him to do any bad things. In fact, just the opposite. He tempts Jesus with good things. He starts with bread. This is what we're told. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Now, nothing bad about bread. Like bread is a good thing. Bread gives us nutrition. Bread brings nourishment to the body. But Jesus, remember, Jesus is on a 40 day fast, preparing him for ministry, preparing him to go to the cross, preparing him to do what he came to earth to do. And Satan wants him to break his fast. Satan wants him to get off mission. Satan wants him to forget why he's here. Satan wants Jesus to lose his focus because Satan knows that if this mission is successful, it will mean his ultimate defeat. So he tempts Jesus to turn the stone into bread and to break his fast. And Jesus responds always with all of these by quoting scripture. In this case, he responds by quoting a passage from Deuteronomy 8. It is written, man does not live on bread alone. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm hungrier for God than I am for food. I'm hungry for food because I'm on this fast, but I'm hungrier for God than I am for food. And so I'm not going to allow my hunger for food, which is typically a good thing, to be hungry for food. I'm not gonna allow my hunger for food to become more important than my hunger for God. I'm not gonna let this good thing become more important than God. Second thing Satan tempts Jesus with is power. It says this, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and he said, this is so presumptuous, right? Just like, wow, this is so presumptuous on the part of Satan. He said, I will give you all. He's talking to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Like the whole universe is him. He created the whole universe. Satan knows he created the whole universe. He's not naive to all of that. But in this moment of weakness, right? Where he perceived weakness on the part of Jesus. He says, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. For it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me. It'll all be yours. And Jesus answered. It is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now there's nothing inherently wrong with power. Like power can be used to help people. Power can be used to right wrongs in the world. Power can be used to fight against injustice. Power can be a really, really good thing. It can be used for good. And Jesus Think about it, Jesus was meant to have power. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Like He was meant to have power. But Satan is offering power that requires Jesus to turn his back on the Father. He's offering power that becomes more important than God. And Jesus responds again by quoting a passage, this time from Deuteronomy six. It says, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In other words, Jesus saying, I'm not gonna allow the pursuit of power to become more important to me than God. In fact, I'm willing to lay down my power and go to the cross in order to accomplish my divine mission in the world. And then the last thing that Satan tempts Jesus with is the opportunity for God to do something special. The opportunity for God to do something miraculous. The opportunity for God to show up and show off. Like all of that. The opportunity to do something miraculous. It says, the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, <laughs> he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. Even Satan knows scripture and sometimes uses it incorrectly. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it says, it is written, it says, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6 again. It is written, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now again... (laughs) There is nothing wrong with God doing miraculous things. God is a God of miracles. Can I get an amen for that? God is a God of miracles. I've experienced the miraculous work of God in my life. So many of you have experienced the miraculous work of God in your life. But God's miraculous activity in our lives is always for a purpose. It's to give us a glimpse of the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. It's to give us a glimpse of what is to come in all of its fullness. And Satan is just wanting Jesus to get his heavenly father to do a trick. He's trying to get Jesus to value God's miraculous activity more than he values God. To value the father's miraculous activity more than he values the father. And Jesus responds by quoting again another passage from Deuteronomy 6. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus saying, I'm not going to make what God can do for me more important than my relationship with the father. I'm not going to make what the Father can do for me more important than the relationship with the Father. Satan is tempting Jesus the same way he often tempts us. Not with bad things. I mean, sometimes he tempts us with bad things. But oftentimes he tempts us with good things. Satan wants good things to become God things in our lives. Satan wants good things in our lives to become more important to us than God. That was his strategy with Jesus. And that is so often his strategy with us. Because I think in some respects, this full frontal kind of attack where you tempt someone with bad things that folks that are interested in the things of God and certainly Jesus was interested in the things of God. He was God, like that full frontal kind of approach of like, I'm tempting you to do something bad, like doesn't work. And oftentimes it doesn't even work in our lives. And so what Satan does is something way more subtle than that, that oftentimes he tempts us with good things. That there are all kinds of good things that he tries to get us to turn into God things in our life. And think about all these good things in our life I like super good things that we are so thankful for that if we allow, they can become God things, that these good things can become God things. And there's all kinds of things. Our children, our spouse, a relationship, our health, our career, some great Social cause, success, and the list just goes on and on and on. And when that happens, when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a substitute for God in our lives. And we begin to look to whatever that is, whatever that good thing is that has become a God thing in our life, we begin to look at that thing for our sense of purpose, For our identity, for our value, for our sense of worth, for our sense of purpose, for why we're here, for what life is all about, for how we organize our life, it becomes at the center of our life. And Satan knows that eventually those things, those good things that we make God things, Satan knows that eventually those things will let us down. Because even though they are good, they are not God. And anything that is good that we try to turn into God will finally let us down. This is why I'm convinced Jesus just keeps quoting scripture. A lot has been made about the fact that every response that Jesus gives to the temptation that Satan offers he responds with scripture and and sometimes I've heard that talked about and it's almost like it's almost like people view that in like a magical sense like you know the way to like ward off the work of the enemy in our lives is just put a bunch of bibles around you you know or get them all over the house just like everywhere just word of god word of god word of god word of god or or just you know just whatever it is like we, we almost turn it into kind of this kind of magical thing. But I really believe that the reason that Jesus keeps quoting scripture, because scripture is the truth that drowns out the lies of the enemy. Like scripture is the truth that drowns out the lies of the enemy. Satan is always bombarding us with lies. And it's a one-two punch. It's a one-two punch. And, And this is what I mean by that. That when we are tempted, like when he is tempting us, when we are experiencing temptation, his lies are, don't worry, don't worry. It'll be okay. It's not a big deal. This is actually a good thing. This is, you'll love this. This will be good for your life. Like, your life will be better because of, like, that's, those are the lies That he tells us over and over and over again. Then, the minute that we give in to temptation, his lies change. And the enemy goes from temptation to accusation. And his accusations are filled with even bigger lies. You're not worthy. Look at what a failure you are. You'll never get past this. You'll never get beyond this. This is going to define you. This is going to leave a stain that will never go away. You are unredeemable. This cannot be redeemed. This cannot be restored. This is who you are. Then the minute we give into temptation, those are the lies that we begin to hear. It's this one-two punch. Temptation and accusation. Temptation and then accusation. Temptation and then accusation. Temptation and then accusation. That's why revival always begins with confession of sin and the receiving of grace. It always does. Outward revival, revival in our hearts, whatever it is, like it always begins with confession of sin and the receiving of grace. Like Jesus. Here's where I failed, here's where I've blown it. Here's where I know my life has not reflected your best for me. And I confess it, I repent of it, I name it, I get honest about it, and then, and then, and then, we hear the words of grace. By the blood of Jesus, you are forgiven. By the blood of Jesus You are forgiven Confession and repentance And then the words of grace Confession and repentance And then the words of grace Confession and repentance And then the words of grace Do you need to hear the words Of grace Today And if you do I just want to invite you together at this altar. We talked last week about the fact that we don't have a formal altar here at the church, but I think God is making the front of our sanctuary an altar unto Him. And if you need to hear the words of grace today, then I invite you together at the altar while we worship together as a church you can kneel you can stand you can take whatever posture you want to take you can stay until the service is done you can stay after the service you can stay for a moment whatever it is just come in a spirit of humility acknowledging to Jesus where you have failed maybe it's something recent maybe it's something you're going through right now Maybe it's something from years ago. Maybe it's something good that you have turned into God. Maybe it's a good thing that you have turned into a God thing. Something really, really good in your life that you have made the center of your life. Maybe it's just the sin of trying to be your own savior trying to somehow earn your way into heaven, somehow be good enough to God. Like, whatever it is, whatever it is, just come and and just between you and Jesus, just confess it and repent of it and receive the words of grace. By the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, you are forgiven. And we're going to worship as you respond to God's spirit at work in your life. And, uh, and then at, at some point, I'm going to come back up. And I want to, I, you have heard the words of grace. And as you kneel before the Lord or stand before the Lord, you can, in your mind, recite the words of grace. But sometimes it is just powerful to just hear the words of grace. Like, sometimes we just need another person to speak the words of grace over us. And I want to speak the words of grace over you today. I want us to hear out loud the words of grace. And then we'll just continue to worship and, and uh Celebrate who God is and what he has done for us. God, in this sacred moment, we pray the same prayer we prayed at the beginning of this message that we would not get in the way. Now, sometimes the things that you want us to experience, that we are the ones that get in the way of experiencing that. And sometimes... Many times, maybe often, maybe most of the time, it's us getting in the way of ourselves. It's us keeping you from doing what you want to do in our lives. And so, Lord, we just come before you today. We just acknowledge where. We acknowledge where we struggle. We acknowledge where we have failed. We confess that to you. We repent of that to you. We want to hear today the words of grace that set us free. The words of grace that allow us to move on. The words of grace that allow us to experience your spirit in all, in all of its fullness. May we hear the words of grace today. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. We pray.